You know how much we love to dig into property data and make sense of it? Well, if you enjoy it as much as we do, then you're in for a treat today. Search data is fascinating as it gives us a glimpse into the behaviour of property buyers in real time and price data can give us a snapshot of what sellers are thinking. And this behaviour shows how buyers and sellers are responding to changes in the economy and they don't always neatly line up with what you'd expect from reading the headlines. The biggest risk to prices is if we see an influx, uh, a lot of listings at the same time that are distressed or they're urgent because that's when we start to see big price um, discounts being offered because they need to offload their property. Welcome to the Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. When we interviewed the editor of Domain a few weeks back, we gained some great intel about how Australians are changing their search criteria for property. And when we asked questions about how the data is collected, she suggested we talk to Nicola Powell. And so today we are. Dr. Nicola Powell is a senior research analyst for Domain Group. She's a leading force behind Domain's data reports and a well-known property expert featured regularly on broadcast and in print media, as well as Domain's media channels. Nicola's analysis drives the agenda for the nation's property conversation and today for our She's known for her succinct, easily understood commentary style and in-depth analysis of market trends. Perfect for us here on The Elephant. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicola. Thanks for having me. Hi, Nicola. Great to have you on here. I I just read an article literally overnight around some price discounting that you've just released. Can you give us a bit more insight in terms of what your research has just found and you know, what's happening out there? Yeah, so the price edit piece is really um, a different way to cut data. You know, we're always trying to look into, you know, as you say, search behaviours, uh, what's happening in terms of the sale market and having a look at it through a different lens. And we often hear about discounting. So discounting yeah. is that that sold price versus what that original asking price is. But there is an element of lag in this um, because obviously some of that sales data doesn't come in because it's government sales collected, so it takes some time. What we've done is we've actually looked at live listings, so live sale Mm. listings each month and how many of those listings have had their asking prices revised downwards. The great thing about this uh, piece of data is it really is a leading indicator of price growth and it really uh, gives us an on-the-ground lens of sentiment, what's happening each month, um, and allows us to kind of see where the property market is going. This is really interesting because... We've always thought of um, price data or price discounting as, um, you know, as you say, the sale price versus the original asking price, but you're basically saying you're measuring it as it happens because obviously the discount happens before it's sold, right? Absolutely. I mean, you see a home coming onto the market with an asking price. And, you know, if that home isn't shifted within, you know, three week period, perhaps mm. then you, you go back to look at what that asking price uh, is. And I think, you know, during this period of time where we're seeing prices fall, um, we are seeing more uh, listings being discounted because I think when you continue to see the, the change in the market, we see it through that um, price edit data. And what was fascinating is when we saw obviously COVID-19 initially um, hit uh, Australia, what we saw was almost an instant bounce in discounting um, over kind of March and April. And Mm. what we've seen, and that was unanimous across all of our capital cities, I think the level of price edits was um, different across the capitals, but it showed that really no capital city was immune from the the impacts of COVID-19. But I think what we have started to see is even though those price edits remain elevated, over July, most of our capital cities have fallen from the peaks um, that have been seen in recent months. So I'm looking at the data on the report and we'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's a really interesting piece um, and it's just coincidental that we have you coming on the following day. Um, But you've got that it was around roughly say 5% of listings were, you know, across all the capital cities were dropping their prices 
um, through 2018 and 2019. Um, and then they all jumped up to say 10 to rough up to 15% in this last sort of three to six months. When you did this report, did you backdate that and actually look at live listings, you know, for the last couple of years? Or was that the, uh, the sole price that you did that on? No, so we we backdated this because obviously we capture data all the time, and um, yeah. you know, it, that data is stored, so it, it's a it's a capture of, of of a point in time. So yeah, it was backdated, and um, you know it's comparing like with like across each of those. Yeah, markets. good. Yeah, it's nothing about the souls; it's purely about the asking. And we, and uh, this data yeah. set, I think we've got about three years worth. So it was really interesting. We captured a bit of that downturn of 2017, 2019 downturn in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and when you do say correlation between between price movements in Sydney and uh, price edits, um, they are correlated. So it really gives us that that um, idea of where prices are going to go in the coming months. That is very interesting, actually, the leading indicator and the fact that that correlates. Because I wonder whether, um, you know, obviously it seems to be the asking price is really a reflection of optimism of vendors and the sale price is really a reflection of the optimism of buyers, right? So yeah. where they diverge, that's showing that there's mm-hmm. not a lot of confidence in the market market um from buyers but where they sort of meet is where buyers are extremely confident vendors typically tend to be quite confident in that their property is worth more than everybody else's anyway um so at what point does it sort of because i would imagine that every peak and uh, and trough of the market is is somewhat like you say there's a leading indicator it's quite fascinating because there's always a point at where vendors just slightly push themselves outside the reach of where buyers are prepared to stretch themselves or where affordability allows so is that sort of does it really show that prices are falling or just that vendors have been overconfident Look, I think um, you make some really good points there. I think we always see a level of price edits occurring in the market mm. because I think finding that sweet spot for pricing, um, you know, can be challenging if the market is rapidly rising or mm. if it's falling. Um, so we always get some level of discounting. But what is very clear is during periods of weakness, um, that level of price edits does bounce. Mm. Um, you know, I think w- when you compare it to, say, July of last year, you know, when you think about what was happening in July of last year, the, the trough of the market had been hit in Sydney and Melbourne, and we were starting to see the recovery um, and price yeah. rose. You know, yeah. we saw a turnaround in clearance rates. But even at that point in time, when we'd already hit the trough and we were starting to grow in, in terms of price, there was still a 5% uh, level of price edits occurring in Sydney and in mm. Melbourne, much lower at 3%. So there's always this level of discount counting where you where, as you said Veronica you know you've got those sellers that are kind of missing the mark they've kind of you know overshooting what a buyer um, is uh, uh, wanting to pay or kind of that pr- market expectation but I think when you continue to see prices um, fall and that weakness month on month it does um, it's very telling in the data and it's very telling in this kind of uh, uh, data capture. It's interesting also because of course with um, are you with auction campaigns, there's no asking price, right? But obviously in the back end of domain, agents have to put in a range so that it's, search, you know, it basically the property will put up, will turn up in the right searches. Um, is that in some way captured here? Because I would think that that sort of, um, that goes the opposite way, doesn't it, where they're underpriced. <laughs> um, so the level of property that would be passed in and therefore uh, put on at a price after auction goes up too and I would imagine that the pricing might vary according to the information that's been captured by the agent from buyers through that campaign but so how does that sort of come out or wash out in this data the fact that you've got higher or lower levels of passed in property yeah so it's like with discounting price edits is the same um, auctions are hard to capture because obviously mm-hmm that price range um and um i mean even though uh, you know in victoria you have to you know disclose a price that is within i think it's the 10 percent range from memory mm. um and legally you you have to you know agent has to has to input that but i think in terms of capture we we perhaps don't capture as much of the auction data as we, we would perhaps like um i think with disc- discounting in particular is solely on um, private treaty sales yeah. so asking versus uh, and I think, you know, this would be much more of a greater reflection on sales by private treaty. And, you know, we have to remember that, I mean, we talk a lot about auctions um, and the auction market, 
Roughly only 30% of sales are sold by auction. Um, the rest are private treaty. And that's, that stat really um, is for Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. Everywhere else, it's um, highly dominated, even more so by private treaty sales. So it's a bigger capture of the overall market. And the reason why we like talking about auctions is it does, again, give us not another different type of lens on market sentiment. But the problem is with that is it's a geographical thing, right? So inner Sydney and inner Melbourne uh, in particular are much more heavily skewed towards auction than the outer areas. Um, that's, you know, and I find that just, you know, there's just a sheer majority of property does because where my office is in, in a, Sydney, for instance, that it's very rare that we come across a private treaty property, a private treaty listing. So in a way, though, that becomes a problem, doesn't it? Because the, the outer areas will perform differently to inner areas anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, there is one thing when you look at the data is that we always talk kind of macro, that big city mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It gives us a broad understanding, but you know, it's devil is in the detail. You know, it's all about the areas, the regions and the suburbs. Um, and, you know, we capture, uh, we dived into the areas um, across our capital, yeah. across Australia, actually, and also the suburbs um, to allow us to see how they are performing differently. And even say, I mean, we release an auction report card each month to dive into Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, which are our auction centric uh, property yeah. markets. Um, and we dive into those different areas, because as you say, Veronica, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. We do tend to see more inner urban areas are dominated by uh, auction the auction market more so than compared to the outer outer areas of the, our cities. You did a, um, another article a few months ago around distressed selling where you said you couldn't really see any signs of distressed selling in the market. Have you? That was like three months ago. Have you seen that there has been an increase in what you can see as distress? So we are due to redo this. We're actually redoing this uh, analysis in a couple of weeks. But, I mean, we are tracking it. Um, And really there has been uh, no uh, real uplift in distressed or urgent selling. Um, And I I think, you know, this is definitely an important metric for us to continue to track because I don't think the risk at the moment is too great because we've obviously got um, measures in place to help people through this very economically challenging time. You know, you've got the ability to pause mortgages. We've got JobKeeper, JobSeeker. Um, so it's helping, fin- you know, it's helping pe- homeowners financially. I think the risk comes um, once um, the ability to pause your mortgage stops. Um, and that's going to be the key period of time to see if we um, see any uplift in distressed selling. Because the biggest risk to prices is if we see an influx, uh, a lot of listings at the same time that are distressed or they're urgent, because that's when we start to see big price um, discounts being offered because they need to offload their property. And obviously that in itself, if we've got lots of listings at the same time, um, really is uh, troublesome when it comes to kind of prices and really shows that there there could be weakness. At the moment, um, we haven't seen any material uplift. Um, You know, there are pockets of um, areas in Australia that have a higher level of distressed selling, but I think they always kind of tend to have um, in recent times. Um, But as a impact of COVID at the moment, there's really um, little evidence to suggest an increase. But there are some areas where there's a lot of stock, like you, you know, in some areas, there might be 12 months worth of stock on the market at the moment. I mean, have you done any analysis, I guess, where you can see that that level is actually starting to rise in specific geographies, geographical areas? In terms of the listings, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the competition is high, yes. And, you know, that goes down to that kind of micro aspect as well. And I mean, you know, there are pockets of um, uh, our cities that have a heightened level of supply. Um, I, you know, I think Brisbane CBD is a prime example of that, where they've had a number of years of elevated unit developments um, and, and increased supply. And that has really weighed heavily on unit prices overall for Greater Brisbane, but more so in that, that city, inner city um, area. I think at this period of time, we're starting obviously to see that shrink um, and that's been happening for a while because obviously we've seen developments, um, uh, the approvals decline, development starts uh, decline in, in Brisbane CBD. Um, but yeah, is, is a great example of an area that if you were a vendor trying to sell um, during that period of heightened supply, it would be very challenging. And I think that's an example of some of those areas where we all, there are always going to be areas that have... Um, a greater chance of having a distressed sale versus yeah. other areas. Yeah. 
What's some of the data that you love to use when you're looking at kind of property and what access points do you think that people should be using when they're trying to understand property better? Look, I think my favourite one, and we've spoken about it in depth, is the price edits one, because this is a new, new unique data set that we've produced this year. Um, and it's just a different way of capturing. It's an on-the-ground lens. Um, you know, I think there's a variety of things uh, that I personally look at. It's, it's things yeah. about, you know, around that sentiment, so consumer sentiment as well, yeah. um, you know, yeah. feeling of, you know, how people feel about the time to buy a dwelling. And I think, you know, the most recent index that was uh, produced um, we obviously saw consumer sentiment tank. Um, and when you look at, I really like to look at the, the question of around, um, is it a good time to buy a dwelling? And that declined um, over the months um, in the most recent August uh, release. And it actually That's is now yeah, well below that decade average. But again, you know, I've said it before, it's a devil in the detail. When you have a look at how the different states are performing, um, you know, there's different outcomes for different states. And actually mm-hmm. that decline was driven by Queensland. There was a very mm-hmm. steep decline in Queensland around that time to buy a dwelling, but all other states, all the major states showed an increase. It is interesting, isn't it, that, you know, that, like you say, the devil's in the detail, that these sort of top lo- top line numbers and statistics can be trotted out and that's usually what makes the, the headlines. Um, but underneath that you go, well, because on the ground we often see, hang on a minute, we would get clients saying to us, but the market's falling, haven't you read the, you know, the, the front page, but why is it that, that that property is competitive and it looks like there's going to be eight people registered for auction and I have to consider you know, what my top dollar is going to be. Can I get a bargain? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you, if you hang around looking for a bargain when you're looking at a great property, you still not, you're not going to buy anything, um, mm. you know. But and, and so then you watch seven other people, you know, register for it and maybe three or four of those compete quite, quite heavily for property and it's like it flies in the face of supposedly what the what consumer sentiment is. Yeah, and I think, you know, that that is almost an issue of how, you know, Australia as a whole communicates this micro level of data. And mm. I think, you know, for any buyer or seller out there, it, they really are just honed in on the area that they are buying or selling in. And that's mm. where it's so important that, you know, we can push out kind of big pieces of research looking, comparing yeah. our capital cities. We also do a drill down into the regions and we do do suburbs, but you can't represent every single suburb in a single yeah. article. And I think that's the challenge that we have. So it's kind of how how do we make that data accessible? And, you know, if I was a buyer, you know, I, I am a buyer, uh, I have been a buyer, you know, um, I've most have actually recently bought a property. And, yeah. you know, when I was on that journey, I look at data every day. But the, the thing that I did, <laughs> the research that I did was I was looking at the listings, you know, how quickly were they transacting? What was yeah. the prices um, be, you know, asking prices? What was the sold prices being achieved? How many of those are being sold by auction to help me understand my micro area that I was transacting in? That's such gold that you say that because, you know, quite a lot, yeah, we, we will talk to our clients about, we have to take that as a snapshot, I think, and, and absolutely publicise, publish yeah. that you said that. You know, the, here's a data scientist that has access to all the macro uh, and right through to micro, given that you've got such um, an interesting data set, and we'll talk about that shortly. Yeah. But, you know, you've got access to everything, and yet you drill down to the micro when you're making an dis- individual decision. And this is what we're always saying to our clients. It's all well and good to understand what's happening in the Australian property market, rabbit ears around that term. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the fundamentally you can get over, you know, you can overanalyze and get completely overwhelmed with data, which sort of leads me to a question. And, you know, maybe it's a bit cheeky, but what is the point of all this macro data in the property market in Australia? Look, I think it gives us, it's that big picture lens. Um, and we have to have that big picture view uh, of overall what's happening. So for example, so say if I was looking to sell my house, um, I'd be looking at the big picture, what was happening in Australia um, economically, what was happening for prices for my city overall. Now, if you're a seller, you know, your ideal is you want to sell at the peak of a market to get as much as you can. You know, that's very hard to uh, pinpoint, but it would help (laughs) me. I'd look at that big picture to help me decide Mm. when I was going to list my home for sale. Um, And then I would drill down into the micro because I think, you know, there are so many sub-markets. I mean, we talk about it a lot at Domain. There are so many sub-markets in Australia. Um, There are so many micro-markets. We're seeing it at the minute, you know, in terms of the impacts of COVID, um, those areas 
areas that are holding up well, those areas that are uh, being impacted more so. Um, yeah. And, you know, even the rental markets are showing that disruption to a different level. And so micro is very important, I think, for your everyday buyer and seller. Mm. Obviously, there's a, been a big home builder initiative that the government have, has released. Have you seen that the way that people search and the way that pe- type of property that people want and are looking at has responded to that government stimulus um, and changed their behaviour? Yeah, I think the home builder one uh, is an interesting one. Uh, you know, in our latest uh, price report, we saw one of the areas that was still growing in price in Sydney was actually in the northwest. And obviously, we know that that area has been a huge kind of development area. Um, yeah. So, you know, you wonder whether will will that continue um, because of uh, that? When you, when you say growing, what do you mean? In terms of price, uh, yeah. price growth, we're still recording an increase in price over the June quarter, which kind of bucks the trend of the majority of the other areas in, in Sydney. Um, now, you know, when you look at, say, where can you buy, a, a, you know, a blank canvas, a block of land in Sydney, you know, there's very few places that you can do that. Uh, you know, Northwest is probably one of them. And also buying a, a, a devs, um, you know, you're pushed to some of these more outer areas. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm expecting we will probably see an increase um, as months tick on um, in those search behaviours in those more outer areas. That's sort of interesting because, of course, when you've got an area that's sort of newly redeveloped, the new stock tends to sell, assuming it's sort of roughly the same size as the old stock, it will sell for a higher price, right? So it's hard to, I guess, how do you sort of pull that apart to say, well, there's actual price growth versus price growth by virtue of the type of stock that's been sold that's brand new and being sold at a premium? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's that actually goes back to the other question that you were asking, you know, why do we do the big picture? The big picture mm. is great because it allows us to give a really robust price. So mm. we use a method called a stratified median, um, and that's groups, um, uh, uh, properties or suburbs based upon their historical performance in terms of prices. They're bucketed into kind of uh, different levels of pricing. So it allows us to give a really robust, it takes away, what I'm saying is it takes away any of that noise that you were saying, you know, about mm. you know, developments um, achieving bigger prices. Again, when you get down to that micro level, yeah, it is challenging and you have to compare uh, like with like. And that's why when if you're a buyer or a seller, it's really important to do that research on, you know, what's being transacted with, within your area. But I think, you know, we we use a median price. And when you get down to that region level, it's still a fairly large capture of data sets. So it helps to take away some of that noise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. You tend to see developments do achieve um, a, a steeper price. And the median does rely on a lot of a lot of transactions to sort of make it somewhat yeah. reliable, doesn't it? Because you know, it's like if you're in a area such as say Balmain, where my office is, and you've got little tiny workers' cottages, and then you've got you know harbourfront homes, and if you get a lot of harbourfront homes that sell, it makes it look like everything's going up in price, and prices could actually be falling, and that happens. So you know, so. yeah. Yeah, and and that's where, you know, we, from our data perspective, we have to take, you know, we take great care in in things like that, because, you know, you you have to be careful that it's um, not a reflection of the types and type and quality of stock being transacted. Um, And that's why, obviously, the more sales you have, the better it is. Um, And when it comes to, say, you know, looking at suburbs, it's why you have to have a much greater capture of data. So, you know, suburbs generally, most um, statistical bodies use a 12-month capture of data. Compare that to the 12 months prior. So in that sense, you know, there is a bit of a lag when you get down to that micro level of prices because Mm. capturing such a vast amount of transactions, you know, one that transacted maybe in January versus one that transacted in December and the market may have moved. So that's, again, another argument why that bigger picture is actually really important to continue to track um, and monitor to give you that idea of what's happening then more so at the the granular level, which is harder to pick up. Yeah, absolutely. 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. With domain, obviously, your business is listing. You know, have you seen a dramatic drop across the cities? And, you know, do you feel that a lot of properties are selling off market or do you have access to that sort of data? So not not to the off-market data, but I think, you know, one of the things that we saw was a pullback in listings. Um, uh, you know, as COVID hit, we saw yep. a pullback in listings, um, um, you know, in the weeks that followed that lockdown one. Now, that in itself um, really has helped to shield prices from large falls because mm. I think those that didn't have to transact during lockdown one um, just paused and waited. But what was quite remarkable was the rebound in listings, um, you know, once we saw restrictions ease um, and sentiment increased. Now, Melbourne, uh, Victoria is going through um, that uh, second wave, obviously, because of that stage four lockdown. Um, And uh, listings have pulled back again. But you know, my view on this is that it is um, a good thing, I think, for the market in terms of helping to shield prices from really significant falls. Um, And obviously, that's good for the overall economy as well, because, you know, nobody wants uh, homeowners losing a significant amount and the value of their home um, is obviously detrimental to the overall economy and, and, you know, our own kind of household spending and and, um, the the wealth effect. Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, That's also, it. I think, you know, w- what we have seen, well, what that does show is that people uh, don't have to sell. If they can actually take their property yeah. off the market or pause it, then they're not under pressure. So I guess that's one thing it shows. But the other thing that that I've noticed, certainly in, in our area, and, and anecdotally I've sort of had this same conversation with a number of agents, both buyers and sellers, that really stock started sort of drying up certainly in inner Sydney, back in 2016, and it's never really picked up at any point. Um, and so we're sort of off a fairly low base anyway when we say stock is, uh, listings are mm. down. But I wonder, does Domain actually compare listings data, your listings data to transaction data to actually then try to work out, um, yeah. you know, what the true picture is in terms of stock levels? Uh, so you're talking around kind of the turnover of, of stock, what we're seeing. Yeah, because there there is an anecdotally, I've got agents saying to me, "Oh, yeah, you know, twenty to thirty percent is is transacting off market," and um, and I, I sort of at first disputed that, but over time, I've I've seen that that has I think that is true, and um, and it's coming from enough agents that I that I think that that is the case, and I think too that so COVID has obviously given people um, a a, re- a vendor potential sellers a reason to put their property on the market or off the market if that makes sense on the market off market um, because you know they're not paying for advertising they're not actually overexposing their property they dip the toe in the market and if it sells they're very happy. Um, but it is sort of hiding the fact that there are listings out there. It's just not being advertised. And it's hiding the fact that if you're getting transactions and prices are holding up, that there's actually more of a robust market than people are thinking. So that's why I wonder if you're comparing those two figures to say, mm. well, how, you know, because there's all this thing, well, the reason that prices are holding up is because listings are low. But I've, I've actually done some of my own uh, analysis on this and it's, look, it's minimal in terms of I've just randomly chosen some areas and some property types. But in many cases, transactions have been holding up or potentially even increasing through COVID. So, uh, you know, over that period. So that's why I wonder whether, you know, you're overlaying that with, at any point. Yeah, so we do look at turnover. The thing with, you know, the sales transaction, particularly if we're starting to now kind of, you know, see off market transactions, the thing with sale transactions, it takes a while for obviously that data to be collected. So we yeah. don't, we won't have a full picture lens until kind of all those government, uh, you know, the government data is then uh, collated and collected. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, we do look at that turnover, and I think you know what we there are definitely some areas um, that I, and I agree with you. There are definitely some areas where I think turnover, you know, kind of listings versus um, the transactions um, have actually you know has increased, but there are other areas where it's kind of declining. I mean, you know, mm. my lens on say Sydney it looks like turnover um, has slowed down a little, but that's again yeah. a picture. Uh, and when you drill down to the different areas, there'll be different stories that are unraveling across them. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that obviously Melbourne's in lockdown, so you can imagine that listings are going to go through another drop like they did in the first lockdown. Um, do you think that the mindset shift in Sydney uh, of the fear of a second lockdown is already starting to play out with less listings? You know, you've mentioned Veronica talking to agents that agents are now starting to find the buyers, the sellers are starting to want to sit on their hands again. Mm Yeah, I mean, so, you know, whether listings will fall in this second lockdown, is that what you mean? Or just the fear of a second lockdown. Like, you know, obviously Sydney's on a knife edge, really. You know, we're just holding on that, you know, another couple of outbreaks or one bad day and, you know, the fear will kick off again. Um, You know, in that environment, um, you don't want to gamble. You don't want to put your property on the market and then a lockdown to happen when it's on the market or... Um, you sell and then a lockdown happens and then you can't buy. So just that fear of a potential lockdown, it potentially stops people listing their property. But I don't know if you've been able to see that listings were starting to pick up and then that fear is stopping people listing. Yeah, I, it, it is the case. So um, yeah. we have already started to see uh, new listings in Mel- Greater Melbourne, um, uh, you know, our uh, easing. Um, we had seen them rebound um, pretty strongly from that first um, lockdown. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's likely that we will continue to see listings um, shrink. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it is, you know, that that kind of fear of unknown. And I think, you know, there's always going to be transactions in the market because there's all, we all need a roof over our heads and some people yeah. are going to be in that position where they need to transact. So listings are still going to be there. Um, transactions are still going, going to occur. But, you know, I, this second lockdown, we're already starting to see a pullback and I and do anticipate that to continue. But I would say one of the things that has been quite interesting in the response of lockdown two compared to lockdown one has been the uptake of virtual auctions. Now, Mm -hmm. during lockdown one, Sydney um, had more virtual auctions than Melbourne. And Melbourne has more auctions um, than Sydney uh, consistently, Mm -hmm. historically. Mm -hmm. Um, But this second lockdown, what we've seen is there's been a much greater uptake of virtual auctions in Melbourne. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe it's the fact that um, transacting in that virtual environment, um, people are becoming more familiar with. Agents are obviously more yeah. uh, experienced in it. Um, so, you know, we've seen those um, online auction success rates actually be um, quite uh, strong um, in recent weeks compared to that lockdown one period. And that is really interesting. We interviewed Damien Cooley uh, a couple of months back, actually, and specifically to ask him about how that transition from, you know, on site or in rooms to online went. And he was basically saying that, you know, it, it was a lot of resistance, a lot of withdrawn listings, a lot of agents didn't like it, vendors didn't like it. Um, so, that, and even auctioneers had to learn new skills because they're actually performing to a video camera, not to not to a live crowd. Um but um, so he was sort of saying that he couldn't see a future really where online replaces on site, but he could see sort of a more of a hybrid thing happening. Uh, but it is, and he also did say that there's a, a, ge- a, a geographic slash demographic um, uh, skew towards, you know, away from the older older uh, generation, less likely. And I guess that stands to reason to um, to want to play on a digital platform versus uh, millennials. But um, it is interesting to hear that I guess maybe as people have got a bit used to it or they've got used to COVID and restrictions and thinking well we could be in this for a long time I guess they're sort of just saying well okay look let me deal with it I mean would that be a fair thing to say that people are just deciding that look this is the only option now 
Yeah, I think I think that is. I mean, I think in lockdown one, what we saw, and it's exactly what Damien had said, is this a massive spike in auctions withdrawn, mm. um, bounced to record highs um, historically. And, you know, we've got a few decades of data, uh, auction data. Um, so, it, you know, the response was unanimous. Uh, uh, it was very clear that uh, vendors really didn't want to sell in that auction environment. Now, as lockdown two was announced, we did see again a bounce in withdrawn. So, you know, there is still a segment of uh, those sellers that aren't comfortable with that virtual environment. But the withdrawn bounce was nowhere near what we saw lockdown one. And um, mm. we are seeing, we've seen some great outcomes for virtual auctions. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do think people are becoming more comfortable. I think it helps to um, perhaps break down some barriers. When you look towards, say, markets such as southeast Queensland, where you have a lot of migration from Sydney, from Melbourne, um, I think, you know, it's never going to take away the, you know, inspection in person. But I do think there is a place um, for virtual auctions. Maybe, you know, it, in the future, it will be a hybrid of an on-site, but it's also then, um, you know, uh, virtual as well for those who are purchasing interstate to actually be part of that auction and actually, you know, um, have that transparency rather than having to be on site to bid, um, particularly if you've already inspected the property. It's quite interesting. Last um, week, I actually participated in an online auction for art and uh, we went and had a look at the pieces beforehand. It's a little bit similar. I hadn't actually thought about the parallel until right now. Um, and there was an auctioneer and I swear we were watching for four hours basically because there were a few pieces that we were interested in. He would, he would have still been going. He must have been absolutely shattered. But yeah. he was basically doing a live performance to their staff, you know, and um, and, and people were bidding online. But um, And I'd be curious, maybe I need to follow up with him to see how were the results compared to what they would have expected in previous, uh, you know, in the previous format, which is a whole bunch of people sitting in rooms with their paddles. Yeah, and I know the exact uh, art auction house that you're talking about because it was last <laughs> Sunday. Um, and I have been present at one of those auctions in person when they used to mm. be in person. So I, I think that would be a great comparison to make. I I actually wonder whether for them, um, auctioning virtually has helped to open, um, uh, allowing people to dial in just for that particular auction. Um, and I expect that they've probably achieved greater outcomes would be my yeah. I have to follow them up. You've quite an interesting one, that one. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you've got access to all this data that's basically yeah. being stored. You know, it must be fascinating for a data scientist, just like, you know, kid in a candy store. What What are you, you know, what are you most excited about when you look at this, you know, what you have or what you can do with it? I mean, are you able to tell us what your next project is? Yeah, so we've got a number of, of things in the pipeline. Um, so one of the things is that we're really diving into kind of search behaviours in Victoria. You know, how have they changed during COVID? Because, yeah. you know, we saw kind of search interactions during lockdown one increase. You know, we saw the activity and that interest in property increase. So we're really trying to um, understand, so what are buyer, property searchers looking for um, on their journey, you know, and into that kind of micro area in terms of that price point, in terms of what they're looking for to really kind of understand. Um, one of the other pieces, and, and we're launching this piece next week, is around kind of keyword searches as well. Um, keyword searches have been remarkable. Um, uh, home office um, has seen an extraordinary yeah. increase um, in searches. Um, so that's being released next week. And also we would be re-looking at our distressed selling um, and also kind of um, you know, for me, I want to dive into um, what we can expect post-COVID um, and look at some of those markets that have seen, you know, a strong rebound in listings, what happened to prices, you know, what did that mean for our buyers and sellers? I was going to ask you that exact question because we spoke to Alice Dulce, um a few weeks ago around the search data and uh, keywords. And I thought that was very fascinating how uh, home office and, you know, fourth bedroom and just behavioural change a big shift to say six months ago, right? Um, what I guess I'm a bit fascinated in is understanding, you know, where the wealth or where the property buyers or what their buyer preferences are going to change post-COVID in terms of location. You know, there's, there was a, a pressure to live around the inner city because you had to commute five days. But, you know, how much, 
how many buyers shift, you know, their suburb, you know, who instead of looking at the inner west are now going to look at the, you know, south, you know, north of Wollongong or are going to look at the Blue Mountains, et cetera. Have you got any sort of insights where you've started to see, you know, people that would have looked at, say, the inner ring, but now they've changed their behaviour um, and they were searching lots in, say, the inner west, but now they're searching lots in Central Coast, for example. Um yeah, so I, I do think that the pandemic has forcibly obviously introduced uh, remote work. And I almost feel mm-hmm. like it's it's supercharged a trend that would have happened in, say, 10 years time, um, yeah. you know, this, this working remotely. Uh, it's here. Uh, I think for many, it will be here to stay, even if it means that, you know, you're in, as you say, in the office three days. And when you think about purchasing a home, traditionally, our workplace or our uh, you know, childcare or schooling has really been an important factor yeah. of where we purchase. And I do wonder whether we are starting to see a, ch- a, a change. Um, and the workplace is going to be a less important factor. I think mm. you know, regional areas could be the winners from this. And as you say, kind of living on that urban fringe, I think, you know, anybody that has perhaps been in a in an urban apartment will be during a lockdown will be, you know, yearning for that kind of outdoor space, uh, you know, a larger space. And you have to go to the urban fringe to be able to afford that um, mm. in terms of areas. So when you look at, say, search behavior in the first quarter of this year, so kind of before COVID and then yeah. compare it to the June quarter. So really kind of looking at you know, when that co- the pandemic hit. What's unanimous about um, uh, where we were seeing people search? We did see a rebound in both searches towards regionals and towards um, capitals. But in New South Wales, for example, we saw regional areas increase in searches by 8%. And when you then drill down into um, the, you know, that more micro lens, where we saw the biggest increase uh, in searches. Now, when you look at kind of pre and post COVID, you have to be careful with this data set because you then get seasonal areas, so ski areas that you would expect to be, you know, things like yeah. like perisher. Yeah. You would expect to, to see that quarterly increase. Um, yeah. But when you have a look at, say, the annual changes, it's very interesting that, um, say, in the top 30, most of those areas are regional. Um, uh, Bridie Island in Queensland was one, um, uh, Albany in WA, Harvey Bay in uh, Queensland, Peterborough in South Australia. Um, there were lots of WA areas as well, which I think is telling um, in terms of perhaps where we could see uh, potential growth. There's been lots of conversation around the rebound in WA. I found it interesting that the search behaviour is showing a lot of rebound in WA areas. But I think, you know, there's lots of um, regional areas, Sandy Point in Victoria, um, very few, uh, Launceston in Tasmania, very few city areas, actually. You don't know if they're active, they're just uh, dreaming, Um, you know, like you actually don't, you know, lots of people just, you know, just sit on the internet and look at property uh, every night and they've they've just got an interest. They might own a property in that area. So they're just constantly watching that market and, um, is there any way that you can kind of cut your searches and say we've got a thousand people searching, you know, in this suburb, but 500 we know that are just living in the area and they're just checking prices. 300 are dreaming, 200 are actually buyers. Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually a project we're working on and we call them high intent buyers. Um, So it's being able to determine, um, you know, whether that person or, you know, that property searcher um, is really that high intent. And and that's kind of through what they actually do, how they interact with the site. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, you know, whether they're looking at the contact details of the agent and uh, or whether they're dreaming and just kind of, you know, viewing the video and the, the images, for example. Interesting. And the WA, what I'm interested in there is when you say a sort of a resurgence, is that from people outside WA looking at WA or is it people within Perth looking at regional areas in WA? Look, this is uh, so all searches, so it hasn't cut by kind of where the location has come from. But I think, you know, WA has uh, been a really interesting one because I think, you know, the the 
you know, a little bit of a turnaround in resources is going to benefit areas like WA. Um, we're seeing a rebound in some of those regional towns, um, uh, particularly attached to mining. You know, you've got record high kind of gold prices, um, high prices for iron ore. Uh, and I think for some mining sectors, it's actually meant that the they can increase employment base, which obviously, obviously um, puts increased mm. demand in housing. And I think as well, COVID has also thrown um, perhaps another curveball. I mean, you know, with our inability to travel freely, I think for those uh, fly-in, fly-out workers, what it may mean now is actually they live in these regional towns rather than flying in and flying out. So their family then locates with them. So I wonder whether, you know, we're actually going to see a different trend of how these fly-in, fly-out workers live to be able (laughs) to have that kind of you know, work-life balance. So all those people that invested in mining towns, they might actually finally get payday. Oh, yes. I, I mean, some of these mining towns really have struggled, really, really mm. have struggled. Um, the falls have been um, substantial. Um but even for Perth, you know, multi-year downturn, there's been glimmers of a recovery. I, I mean, price trough was hit last year. I think COVID has um, thrown another curveball. Um, so I think, you know, any kind of resurgence may have been delayed by COVID. But I, I mean, I think WA in itself or Perth is definitely um, holding up much better than our other some of their other capital cities. Interesting. Yeah, because I've got a couple of buyers agents I'm talking to over there. So I think that would be uh, one to come up. So I'll organise that. Um, just for that search data, um, in terms of actually privacy, I know like some websites, like for example, Kogan and other websites, they'll you know say we've got a new someone buying a, a laptop and they're in, I don't know, Brighton, Victoria, let's say. Um, a domain actually looking at the IP address and kind of able to track that we're getting a lot of people searching in this area that live in this area or they're in that area at the moment um, and they're looking for lots of property in this area. So you can see that sort of people wanting to upgrade a lot in their area or you can see people in one suburb wanting to move to another suburb a lot. Like is Damien looking at that sort of data? Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, we look at where searches are coming from and where they're going to. So yeah, we have mm. we can slice and dice the data in so many different ways. So I'm interested, um, sort of the flip side of where buyers are or where people are searching, i.e. looking for bigger places and looking for more space, which is seems to be a bit of a byproduct of being locked up in your homes. Yeah. What about the smaller apartments? What is happening with demand or interest in one-bedroom apartments or even two-bedroom apartments? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not something that I've dived into in depth in terms of comparing that kind of bedroom number. Um, What I think is interesting about, you know, apartments is, you know, we do, when you look at, say, the disruption um, that COVID has made, the biggest disruption has been in the rental market and the biggest disruption in terms of bedroom number has been one bedroom apartments. Mm. Now, I think, you know, and that obviously will have flow on effects on the sales market and demand for one bedrooms. Mm. Obviously, We do see a lot of investors buying apartments, buying those smaller uh, apartments off the plan, uh, new devs um, to, to lease rent out. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of rental price falls, one and two bedrooms have seen the greatest impact that again has been located in our inner city areas of Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Um, you know, the, the the disruption to price has been um, quite great. I think from memory, it was around five percent drop over three months, um, which is um, yeah. a very large revision. Um, and that's because you know we're seeing, as you as we've just spoken about, I think our behaviours change, uh, what we want change. Obviously, for the rental market, it's being impacted by fewer students, um, foreign yeah. students um, living in those one bedders, which are you know have a high concentration in those CBD areas. Um, so I think you know th- we could eventually see that have that flow and effect. I think for um, the sales market as well. The unit markets are definitely struggling because you know typically investors have bought them because you know uh, home buyers it only certs, uh, you know fits a certain demographic you know whether singles or divorcees or um, etc. So you know maybe eighty or ninety percent of one bedroom apartments are investors and the investors aren't buying and. Um, you know, and they're selling because they're more likely to sell when times get tough rather than a home buyer because, you know, the home buyer still needs to live somewhere, right? So um, it's going to be interesting to see what plays out there. Have you got a property Dumbo for us? 
I certainly do. So um, this is somebody that I know very well, so they may hate me for telling this story. (laughs) (laughs) No names, no names. No names. names. But so they purchased a property and um, the property, a warning flag for me is if a property has been transacted a lot of times in a very short space of time. This property um, fitted into that category. Now, the open homes were only at uh, nighttime in the evening, you know, when the sun was down. And they thought this was their first home and they thought nothing of it. And they obviously fell in love with the home until they moved into it. And they realized that the home had no natural light, which is very important. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was the reason why it had been transacted lots of times. And that was the reason why that they only had open homes in the evening. Um, And they they then went on to sell it pretty quick too. Oh, God. Did they financially kind of get away with it not too bad in terms of a similar sale price and no they they came out lower um but i think for them it they just couldn't live there anymore because uh, you know of, of the lack of light coming into the losing their tan yep <laughs> you don't think about it because you fall in love with the home and you go at two o'clock and that's when just the sun hits the back deck and um yeah and you think that it's always going to be like that i just yeah, it's, it's such a funny thing, isn't it? And then even when you're trying to book a private inspection, the agents are, are very careful. I imagine, Veronica, you see that mm. they uh, direct you, oh, sorry, I can't do 9 a.m. We'll have to do 2 o'clock. And it's like, well, that's the same time as I saw it last time. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, I think that happens as well. Yeah, it's so important to, to view at different times of the day. You know, I, I even think, you know, you forget, you know, if you live in, say, really near to a school, you forget how busy school drop-off and pick-ups mm. are. It's crazy. Mm. And, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to live that close, you know, within a school drop-off zone because it is a very crazy period. I'm in it every day dropping my own kids off. Um, I wouldn't want to live near a school drop-off zone. Oh, I drive you nuts. Stuck in traffic every day trying to get it in and out of your own driveway, you know, it drove you absolutely bonkers. Another one is beach suburbs. You know, a lot of um, in summer is this massive influx of people and you can never get a parking spot anywhere. You can't even run up the road to get some milk because you can't you can't park. And, um, you know, so everyone says, oh, I want to live close to the beach. And it's like, that's cool. Just make sure you've got a double garage and make sure that you don't ever, you don't have friends over in summer. Yeah. It's funny because then all the rat runs happen as well at certain times. You're like, oh, it's a beautiful, quiet street. You know, there's never usually traffic. on. Everyone goes down the main road and then... Um, the locals yeah. go to the back road. The locals <laughs> yeah. go to those back roads, which are around you, Veronica and Balmain, happen a lot, right? They all just cut through those, the few streets that everyone drives down. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very good Dumbo, to be honest, because, you know, there's lots of learnings there. I think the transacting of the same property lots... Mm. Um, and that data is easy to find. Like you can just one search and you can see that it's sold four times in the last five years. Um, and I, I uh, probably a tip I think you do, Veronica, I imagine with, with clients is you'll probably then call those agents that sold it over that last four years. And because if they're not selling it again, um, sometimes they, you know, want to do the, say the dirty things on their other agents listings. Right. And so, um, you know, I've done that before and, you know, real estate agents told me about properties that might have building issues or, you know, there's problems with selling that property because of X, Y, Z reasons. So, uh, <laughs> And when you've had one of those properties is really tough to sell, you don't want it back. And when yeah. you've sold it to somebody like that, you go, oh, my God, I hope they don't come back to me when they want to sell it because you know how bloody soul-destroying it is selling it. And and this is the thing that I remind people, agents are very good at getting commitment from buyers and agents don't ha- care. It's not their job to worry whether it's the right property for you. They've just got a job to do and that is to sell that thing for the people that made the mistake before you. <laughs> Sorry. And IP data or, you know, whatever sort you want to use can actually show you how long it was on the market back in 2012 and, you know, it was on the market for 162 days. Like that's already showing you a big warning, right? It took a long time to sell um, and it sold four times in the last five years. Um, It's not a hot property, right? So I think um, it's very good to look at those kind of past sales in a bit of detail when Mm -hmm. you're looking at property. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicola. Um, we'll uh, we'll put the link in the show notes for that price edits uh, most recent article anyway, and and you know and 
the insights into the sorts of data you've got, what you're looking at doing with it. I think we'll all be watching to see some of this post-COVID um, and remembering that we're not post-COVID at the moment, but, you know, looking at the world post-COVID. Um, that will be very interesting to see. So we'll look forward to reading all about that. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you, Nicola. Really appreciate it. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... I just want to share with you a little hack, actually, that uh, we use in our, well, actually, we don't use in our business because we have access to databases, but we recommend people in Home Buyer Academy actually do this because you can access sold data um, and sold property prices quite easily in both domain um, online and also on realestate.com.au. Both of them have sold tabs. So when you search to buy, a lot of people, when they're researching a market, they just go and look at what's on the market for sale. They don't actually think to look at what has sold and what did it sell for. Now, obviously, when you've got a lot of price not disclosed in there, which does happen certainly when the market's a bit transitional, um, you know, you won't know for sure. You might have to pick up the phone or go out there to open houses and just get chatting with agents to pick up that data. But there's a lot of information that you can gather and you can look at floor plans and photos. You can do drive-bys past those properties really to get a sense of what's happening with prices in that area. So certainly um, Nicola actually gave some great tips for the important things that she looked at when she was looking at buying. And I think that they're really valuable because looking at the micro market is so important. But um, looking at that sold section, so many people have never, ever dabbled in there, never played in there. So if you haven't, take a time to have a look. Oh, I agree. But I also think that um, it's a little bit uh, deceiving. I mean, I had a client, a new client yesterday, they're buying in Melbourne, they want to uh, start to do some research prior to, you know, with the lockdown finishes, then they can actually have a bit more knowledge of the market. And um, the problem with the sold type, yes, you can look at the floor plan and that helps, but, you know, it's nowhere near as good as actually going through the property and, um, you know, experiencing it. Because I think the looking at the photos of the property, they always show their best light. They don't hide the imperfections and the, the things that you uh, don't, don't know about the property. So, just be a little bit careful um, kind of doing your price research on the sold tab just because, um, yeah, you might, yeah, either underquote what you actually think the property's worth because, you know, a similar property that's nowhere near as good is selling for, um, you know, a smaller price. So just be careful with it. But I agree 100%. Don't look at the buy tab if you want to know what's happening in the market. Look at the sold tab because it's a much better Um, realistic understanding of the prices. Actually, when it comes to price research, um, we've got a free mini course on Home Buyer Academy, which is uh, homebuyeracademy.com.au forward slash free course because it does take you through that whole process and absolutely agree that as a starting point, look at that sold um, data because that also will give you an indication of whether you can get whether you can afford to get what you think you're going to yeah. get in the area whereas what yeah. happens the buyers look at what's on the market if it's in an auction area it's being quoted a bit less than they're expecting and you sort of you rush out there with wish, wishful thinking so it's good for a reality check but you will actually start by inspecting properties you will actually start gathering up that knowledge so it's really good resource um, for those properties you haven't inspected um, but uh, but yeah there nothing beats actually getting putting together and there is a spreadsheet actually in that um, in that mini course as well that you can use to actually start collating all the data and I absolutely agree that you should get out there and look at as many properties as possible before before you actually buy. I agree around the price. I had a client uh, yesterday as well and, uh, you know, the budget's you know, super tight because um, of uh, the savings um, that the person's got. And so, and that what they want to achieve is in these areas. And um, I did a quick search and looked on the sold tab and there was nothing selling anywhere near the price that he had to spend <laughs> um, in those areas. Um, and so it was very quickly that sold tab just said, look, it's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So, um you know, and that saves potentially three months. Whereas you looked at the listings, actually, there was actually listings in his budget. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and because it was so tight on budget, there was no flex there. Mm. Uh, you know, you just could save three, six months going to these listings and then keep shooting over his budget. Well, and, and also the cost of building pest inspections or strata oh, reports yeah. and getting the contract reviewed. And this is where a lot of buyers get so frustrated with the whole process. And and they've got to take their part in, in they've got to take responsibility for their bit, and that is researching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah opportunity cost of prices but even that you know i've had clients who have just given up on the whole buy process mm. it's just become all too difficult um 
And, uh, you know, things change sometimes. Like, a, you know, a client unfortunately sent me an email yesterday and um, his wife's lost her job. And, you know, they've been very active buyers. Um, but now that she's lost her job, they can't buy until she gets another job. Mm. And so the time, you've got to sometimes not take it for granted that the, you can always just buy and just keep waiting because, you know, they had missed out on a few properties and now they are out of the market. And it's just, yes, she could get another job tomorrow and they'll be all okay, but it's who knows. And so you've just always got to be, um, just be careful that you're not wasting time. Yeah, that's horrible. Please join us for our next episode where we do a deep dive into what Australians are spending our or their money on. We are interviewing Simon Bly, CEO of Illion. Now, Illion have amazing access to data about the ways in which we're spending money and also our credit files. And also we're going to shed a spotlight on the amount of people that have actually taken advantage of early access to super and what they've been spending that on. So tune in. Very interesting conversation. Please join us. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.